0: She would have married your uncle, Eugenides said, as if sensing his thoughts and turning them in a new direction. I am glad she will not, said Tsunis. Me, too. Eugenides smiled. The Medes will find us united against them, said Tsunis. I should hope so, said Eugenides. You shot the ambassador. You gave me the gun. They both laughed.
1: Real friendship. Welcome, stunned religious converts. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Aetolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to help you recover from Return of the Thief. It's March 7th, 2021.
0: And today we are covering the last two chapters of Conspiracy of Kings, and we are going to finish the
1: book today. That's right. You thought maybe there were two more episodes of Conspiracy of Kings left? Well, psych! It's just this one, because they're both very short chapters. And they sort of cover the same events. It's in one Sophos talks to Edison and in the other he talks to Eugenides. And they're very related conversations.
0: I was just trying to separate in my mind what happens in each to to say something about it and couldn't remember. You know, is there a difference? They feel like the same scene. Yeah. (laughs) So Sophos finally sees Atolia's library, which... uh, Helen asks you've never been in here and he says no and she says that Jen made sure no meetings were held here and the architect was Ictenos Jen's great-great-grandfather and the thief of Edis although that is not well known in Atolia even now and
1: Edis hesitates before she says that yeah. and I never really understood why it says Edis hesitates oh
0: I think I think it's because the thieves of Edis like the topic is such a taboo thing in Mm edis remember she's talked about that before with the magus maybe in this book about how yeah like haven't you noticed nobody talks about them
1: yeah that makes sense
0: but also just from a i guess just from a political standpoint even without the taboo and whatever may or may not be going on it can't be you know (laughs) good to know that your uh political neighbors other countries have the layout of your palace and help design it
1: that's so. Uh, that's planning ahead. Yeah, I
0: know. Very smart. I think Jen tells Atolia about that the, at the end of Queen of Atolia. So she's in the know.
1: But this is the library that Sophos has been dreaming. Yeah. About. And when he's been dreaming about Edith being there but not saying anything, Edith has also been experiencing these dreams. Yeah. And there's a a statue of both a lion and a rabbit in the library which I like and a fox as well which is interesting
0: yeah carvings on the bookshelves they right sound carvings cool. not statues I would love to see art of this library Ooh, that would be cool yeah. this would be a cool thing to have in the film adaptation
1: yeah this would be nice Sophos he's just this is his revelation that the gods yeah. are real and can interact with him and
0: he's That's, very bothered he's
1: very scared valid This is not fun. And he's asking all these questions. He's like, Helen, I need you to tell me. I need you to tell me the rules, okay? What can they do? (laughs) When? Why? With whom? What's going on? And she's, uh, she's not having that. He yells, tell me at her. And she yells back at him. Answer your own questions.
0: The narration says... Edith knew that all the world would seem to him insubstantial, as if it might tear away and reveal something else infinitely larger and more terrifying. Which is consistent with all of the first-hand encounters with the gods we've seen over the series, that it is an unsettling, terrifying event, mostly.
1: It's almost akin to the characters realizing that they're characters in a story. Mm, Yeah. Yeah because suddenly the world seems imagined to them and like there's another realer world somewhere else.
0: It also kind of makes me think about, you know, those moments where you realize mortality is a real thing and you yourself are really gonna die someday. Whereas 99% of the time you can ignore that fact. You know, just like illusions about the world that we depend on for our regular days and states of mind are torn away. And Edith doesn't have that many more answers than Sophos. She says, the more you know of the gods, the more you know what you cannot understand.
1: Yeah, and she says, write it down. It will grow less clear. First, it will begin to seem that it was really just a dream and a mere coincidence that this library is so familiar. Then it will be a memory you have, of a dream you can't quite remember, and then even that will be gone. Some of the stuff that Sophos asks is... Do they appear only in dreams or do they have physical properties? Can you touch them? Can they, he looked up, can they bring bolts of lightning? We don't know. Mm. Yes. <laughs> Megan. Uh, but he's approaching this like a scientist. He's trying to, you know, he's the kid who remembers all the taxonomy and stuff. He wants there to be logic, internal logic. Yeah. Uh, and that's just not going to happen. And, and. Helen is saying you have to let go of that.
0: It's consistent with how he approached all of his other... His lessons with Moira, too, always asking for the reasoning behind everything. I think... Okay, well, I forgot about you. I forgot about Eugenides for one second, but I was going to say, I think she's the character with the most... Uh, the most interactions with the gods in the series,
1: but I guess... Other than, <laughs> there's other than a Jen, little. who's an outlier yes. and should not have been counted. <laughs> and it really... um. It goes to show just how strong Edith's faith is because she's had these dreams and you're sure of them in the moment. And then over time they fade and they, they seem like something that was only a dream or, or maybe you didn't even dream at all, but she continues to feel conviction that this is something that's real and something that she has to act on.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And Jen, they talk about Jen as being in a category of his own here, Mm -hmm. um, Sophos says, What does he dream? He asks, afraid to hear the answer. They aren't dreams to him, Sophos, said Edith, feeling his arms tighten again around her at the implication. I believe that the veil for him is always thin and that he walks through the world gingerly. But of course he can't answer Sophos's questions either.
0: And Edith says... Because of these dreams, she says, I need to empty the city of Edis. I need to give every man and woman and child a reason to think that life will be better for them away from the mountain, down in the lowlands, out on the islands, anywhere but Edis.
1: Man, it's so, like, Uh... she is Edis. She literally, that's her name. And she's having to leave uh, herself, essentially empty out herself anitas has so many parallels to jen in that in getting things that she wants and are meaningful to her she also has to accept loss and what's the 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 back of the book blurb description for queen of atolia that I'm obsessed with. His greatest triumph is also his greatest defeat or loss or something like that. Hmm, shall I go look? I have it right here. <laughs> One second.
0: Okay, yes. But his greatest triumph as well as his greatest loss can only come if he succeeds in capturing something the Queen of Atolia may have sacrificed long ago.
1: And that's also, that's also what Edith is experiencing.
0: You know, all the characters, the main ones experience this to some extent. You know, even Sophos right here, he's gaining a marriage. He's gaining his throne back, but he has to sacrifice soon as his independence.
1: And when we think ahead to, um, to Camet, I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, what he learns in that book is that what he thought was his greatest loss is actually his greatest triumph.
0: And it says here, um, back in this chapter, with more faith in himself and his father's army... He could have retaken his throne without Atolia's aid. He might not have followed the bloodier and more costly path, but Edis and Atolus hadn't offered him that choice. And Edis is praying that he would not ask for an apology she could not give for this.
1: Yeah. And that uh, is an interesting contrast with the previous scene where she's uh, feels like he's asking for forgiveness that she's not sure she can give. And, like, she is in a position here where um both of them have from a certain perspective wronged each other and they just have to live with it it's it's very interesting
0: that we get to explore the same concept with both Jen and Irene and Helen and Silvos but in different ways
1: and every choice that you make cuts off alternate avenues if you do nothing anything could happen but you can't do nothing so you have to all choosing is almost inherently violence like you kill something you kill what you didn't do and of course for these characters that often manifests as there is literal violence happening as well
0: and refusing to choose is still itself a choice you can't There's no way to
1: abstain from action, even through choosing passivity. And Sophos goes to talk to Jen in the last chapter, and he surprises Jen, um, because Edith finagles it so that they announce her, but then Sophos walks in, um, and Sophos thinks it's because Jen would have retreated into- back into that formality otherwise, that they had broken through before, and, um... Jen is surprised and he knocks over his wine cup and then he he fails to catch it and it breaks. But Sophos knows that he could have caught it if he wanted to, but he didn't want to because he's drinking his wine hot with foul herbs in it as a favor to my palace physician who wants to show the Queen of Edith's physician just who's in charge here. Which is funny, but also reminds us that the physicians are fussing over him all the time because... His health is delicate. Another
0: ominous clue. Yeah. He's wearing a robe to keep him warm because he's ill or something.
1: Uh.
0: Ah. I was
1: so worried that he was just gonna keel over in Return of the Thief.
0: Sophos asks Jen, why didn't you just tell me to take Atolia's advice? And Jen says that, uh, he thought Sophos should figure it out for himself because what you learn for yourself you will know forever. And Sofa says, "Pole used to say that." And Jen says, "I learned it from Aww. him." I just wish, to my God, I had his patience for the process. <laughs> I love, I love that there are lines scattered throughout this book recalling the thief and what they went through together, and Pole and Ambiades, etc. It really mm-hmm. makes the series feel more cohesive it makes it feel more like one unit to have it tied together like that
1: and i do to return to the idea that you can allegedly read these books in any order i do wonder what it's like to to read this book cold and see those references because it, it does explain them oh he was thinking of the soldier that he'd look up to when they were on this quest um but if you don't know <laughs> anything about the quest
0: and it would be interesting to read this first and already know when you go to read The Thief for the first time that uh, Ambiades betrays them and Paul dies. We have two interesting quotes in this chapter that I wanted to bring up and kind of link. Um, so this chapter with Jen and Sophos talking, they're in a, a logia, if that's how you say it above the palace, which I had to look up, and it's like a, uh, a stone porch, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's overlooking the city, and it's late afternoon, and the liquid light is spilling down, and, uh, the narration says, he could see people in the streets beyond the outer wall of the palace, standing, talking to each other, or walking from the wider avenues into the narrow alleys, and it, it goes on like that for a little bit. And then, at a separate point in this chapter, um, it says that he pulled a chair over and placed it just out of the sunlight, which was too bright to suit him. So both of these quotes made me think of the dust motes again with Moira and how yeah. she was pushing dust motes, like individual lives, into her out of the light. And I just think it's significant that The two monarchs of these countries are looking down over the city, looking down. They can see individual people, a man coaxing a donkey over a step, but they're up above and those people are down below. They're rulers. I don't know, and Sophos decided to stay out of the sunlight in this one (laughs) metaphorical choice. There
1: are so few, uh... Ordinary people... ...who are... Well, uh, that's not true. I was gonna say there's so few ordinary people who are characters. But, uh, that really depends on, um, what your definition of ordinary person is. Is Kamet an ordinary person? Is, uh, Costas an ordinary person? Both of them get chosen. By someone who is chosen by the gods. And they they enter into this state of significance.
0: Cosmic significance, you mean? Like political significance?
1: Uh, both. Because I think that those two things are one and the same Yeah, in this story mm-hmm. a lot of the time. There are definitely uh, things to be said and thoughts to be had about comparing and contrasting this to more conventional chosen one narratives Um, especially in literature for the same age group I don't really know what my thoughts are about that but there's definitely something because it feels very very different
0: it does it does so much so that you know I agree with you that this you know, this this does count as a chosen one narrative, but I would never have thought of that if you hadn't pointed it out. Yeah! You know? Like, <laughs> technically fits, but...
1: I think maybe it's because it feels genuinely religious.
0: Yeah. It's not, like, it's... It does not... Hmm, I don't know. Like, other chosen one narratives, it feels like... It feels like this character was chosen to... F- fit the story and move the story along and as a as a as a plot device to tell a certain story but this yeah I don't know I guess maybe I'm trying to say something about the world building
1: yeah <sighs> well, I think that a lot of the time when you have like uh, this chosen one idea it's a, a person who is told that they have been chosen by other people and are like put On that pedestal in a social context. And in this story, even though the people are are kings and queens, the chosen oneness is like a very private experience.
0: Which I feel is not the genre norm.
1: Yeah, it doesn't matter if other people believe that Jen communicates with the gods. He just does. Mm -hmm. And he he is being used as a tool of the gods uh as many other people have been over the course of history will be after him and may also be at the same time mm-hmm. he's simply having like it's it's a special singular experience but not in the sense of of like like in the sense of it's a special singular experience because he's a singular individual as we all are it reminds
0: me of that uh line in Queen of Atolia where he's talking to that goddess and it says, uh, you know, he was set apart from others, seen in the eyes of the gods, but he was, at the end of the day, just a piece of dust like the rest of them. And all put together, yeah. you have dust.
1: For Jen and Sophos in, in these scenes that we read today, it comes with a, a recognition of your own insignificance. Mm-hmm. And when you think about that in relation to, like, who brings you here, I bring myself. Mm, say more about that. Like, you've got both the... Uh, in the way that you have both, like, the the insignificance uh, and the significance of the private and the personal. Mm-hmm. You have, I think, both the significance and the insignificance of the individual. Because... You're a tool of the gods. You're just dust, as everyone is just dust. All of this is a tiny moment in history. The world that you see could tear away and reveal something infinitely larger and more real. But also, I bring myself. And, like, nobody but Jen could have done the things that Jen Mm -hmm. does. Because Jen is Jen. You know, these characters do what they do
0: not because the gods are controlling them but because the gods know them so well and it, yeah, it still it's like comes like every
1: thread in a tapestry sort of yeah thing.
0: it still comes back to individual agency
1: and during this conversation that Sunus and eugenides not sophos and jen have um Sunis says i didn't expect to die i knew you would send help why It was Sunus's turn to be surprised. He said, you told me you needed me to be Sunus. I am. I needed my king to send me help. You did. There had to be reinforcements at Onea, so they were there. To him, it was obvious. Eugenides swallowed. I see. And so, like, Sophos has all of this faith in Jen, and it makes Jen, uh... I mean he Eugenity's swallowed, I see like he's 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 overwhelmed or he's uncomfortable. he might even be afraid. and that's such a cool little exchange. Yeah,
0: that is that is it is cool. It makes me think about how just even in chapter twenty two, you know, even though Sophos is now in this little little group of people whose eyes have been opened to the gods or whatever, Jen is still above him, if you can say that.
1: Set apart. And Jen, he has to look directly at the amount of power that he has over this person that he loves so mm-hmm. much. Also, uh, we would have died without the additional men, but we would have taken the entire Mead army with us. Poets would have written about us and songs would have been sung about us. For all the good that would have done your dead bodies, Eugenides cynically interrupted. Death is very final in this universe. They don't talk about their idea of an afterlife a lot. It's very much like you're just gone. Yeah, which is something I really appreciate because, you know. Yeah. and I think that
0: also, like it colors their religious experience Absolutely. And just, oh, you know, the rest of the genre is just saturated with people coming back to life. And like here, when people die, they stay dead. <laughs> and when yes. your hand gets cut off, you lose it. Consequences exist. And that is reassuring yeah. in literature because that is real life. <laughs> Uh, my last closing thought about the book was just remembering, um, just reading this this final paragraph of the book that um, Eudice is gonna marry soonest. So like, they're hopefully fingers crossed. There goes the volcano problem, and uh, the Medes <laughs> the Medes will f- <laughs> take care of check check it off. The mews will find us united against them. When I read this for uh, the first time, I assumed this was the end of the series because those two major overarching plot arcs seem to be wrapped up or on their way to being wrapped up and the two major relationships are about to both be married, whatever, so my wait for Thickest Thieves, one can say, was a little bit shorter than everyone else's because I didn't realise until several years after Conspiracy of Kings was out that it wasn't even the last book.
1: <laughs> yeah, it it definitely uh I remember being surprised that Thickest Thieves was coming out. Over the moon excited. It it does not feel at all like she uh, kept it going. No,
0: absolutely. I'm very glad we got the last two.
1: And it ends with friendship. The Medes will find us united against them. I should hope so. You shot the ambassador. You gave me the gun. They both laughed. It ends with Laughter. (laughs) chapter 22 and 23 wrapping up A Conspiracy of Kings. Next time we start Thick as Thieves. Send
0: us your comments, questions, thoughts, any closing closing remarks about the book, your overall thoughts. What do you think? Chime in at artolianarchives.tumblr.com
1: Be blessed in your endeavors. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening. This has been an amateur embroidery production. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are available.